0: All right, welcome back to another episode of the Walking Closer podcast. You are listening to episode 113, which is titled No Mandates, Just Aha Moments. So, if you have not been following along, we are working our way through a book by the late Dallas Willard titled The Divine Conspiracy. And I basically share with you some things that I take away from the book. And in this episode, we're going to look at an alternative view of what is traditionally called the Beatitudes. So I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. We're all formed by our life experiences, but sometimes these experiences shape us in negative ways. And the process of spiritual transformation can help undo those negative impacts so we can live life to the fullest. And Walking Closer is all about this journey through internal transformation where real changes happen from the inside out. Several years ago, I was introduced to the divine conspiracy. And uh, while there are many things that intrigue me within this book, I found Willard's approach to the overall biblical narrative refreshing. And this freshness is clearly on display when applied to what is traditionally called the Beatitudes. See, these are those sayings that kind of introduce or open up what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this term Beatitude uh, seems to be a term applied to these passages, first by the Latin Church in the 4th century. And honestly, it's just stuck ever since. It has all sorts of baggage and ideas that have gained, I think, attraction, and there's lots of implications in there when we use that term to us. It brings certain meanings and pictures in our minds, and uh, you know, in the Latin language, it's a word that denotes you know blessedness, and it's even like a declaration of blessedness, which is again why the term beatitude is used. And it looks like in the English word, uh, it, it has its origins in Latin and French, and basically means supreme happiness, well off, fortunate. I think, I think we could possibly supplement the word joy here and come away with essentially uh, the same meaning. Now, the title of this episode is No Mandates, Just Aha Moments. And I've titled it as such because of how we typically approach this text. See, traditionally, this text is approached like it is something God supposedly requires or desires of us, like it's it's something to attain, like it's salvation by attitude, um, I mean, in fact, I've heard it and I've even taught it this way because this is, this is how I was taught. It's attitudes to be. Like it's attitudes you must adopt. Like it's a list of how-tos to blessedness. It's a list of mandates as such. But I don't think this is what Jesus is doing at all. And I think we miss the point when we approach it this way. And I have to say that it was Willard. That introduced me to a different way of looking at this. And while the entire book really lays out this different perspective, it was chapter four of the divine conspiracy that used the Beatitudes to demonstrate this perspective. And so it was after reading this that I began to see what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount much differently than before. And I want to share with you this perspective specifically, okay, when it comes to the Beatitudes. Before I begin, I have to say that there are two narratives of this text. One is in Matthew 5 and the other is in Luke 6. And I approach these two narratives as parallel accounts. And I know there are some who argue these narratives or are depicting two different scenarios. And some of the points that are made are actually valid, I think, and at least contextually. However, I think substantively they are enough alike that it seems to me that we can safely approach them as parallel accounts. And I don't think it's hard to concede that these are narratives of the same event. Uh, at the release, I don't think it's hard to consider the fact that Jesus would have repeated core points of his teachings on various occasions. And it's also plausible that this is what we have here as well. So either or, I don't think it really changes anything. And at the end of the day, I guess I'm trying to say that I don't think it's that big of a deal. And regardless, it doesn't take away from the bigger point that I am trying to make. I feel like I have to say this, though, because we, we get a little sensitive when it comes to things like this. So... I will be referring to both texts, Luke 6 and 5, and now you know why. Um, so, here we are. Jesus has begun his ministry. He has disciples. He has selected. He is making waves and has gotten the attention of lots of people. And at some point, he specifically separated 12 disciples from the rest. And they these are those called apostles. And at this particular point, they are in a mountainous region. And this is where we pick up in Luke. Luke six seventeen, And he came down. Jesus came down with them, the apostles, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. And a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him. For power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes. Eyes On his disciples, and then Matthew five two says it this way, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, before we go any further, I think it's a crucial point in the ministry of Jesus to have to say this: we must be careful not to overlook its importance, not underestimate its impact. Right? We must also be careful at how we approach this text. Now, I'm not assuming my approach is the best or even entirely accurate, but it's what makes sense to me. And it makes sense to me when I am careful to keep these teachings in their greater context. And that's extremely important to keep in mind. The greater context here. Jesus' ministry, his message was about the presence or the reality of the presence of the kingdom of God and how it is available. And with this message, he has an audience. And with an audience, Jesus speaks in ways that are practical and relatable to them. Now, when Jesus began preaching, the gospel accounts sum up his message with this phrase Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is literally the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the heavens has come near. And in the Greek, it's a picture of continuous action. In other words, it's here and will continue to make itself apparent. And what Jesus is doing is presenting the option of, of living a life within the kingdom of God. And so, essentially, the kingdom of God is the, is the realm and, uh, of the reign and the rule of God, and, and, and we can live in that realm under his reign and rule. It's a realm that transcends time and space. It's a kingdom without borders. It's a realm that includes his movements, his purposes, his will. And the New Testament describes it as a life that is in his life. And so, this is an, an invitation to indwell the divine and have the divine life indwell humanity. So, Jesus essentially says, the realm of God has broken into humanity's world. Now, it's, it's one thing to go around claiming this, but it's another to prove it. And this is essentially what Jesus has been doing. He was going around demonstrating this by meeting the desperate needs of those around him. Like he used divine power over sickness and demons and nature, etc. He he went around doing those things you would expect to see if you were in the realm of God, under the reign and rule of God. This is what Jesus has been doing up to this point. And as mentioned before, he has lots of disciples and he has a special group called apostles. And at this point in Luke 6 and Matthew 5, he's going to further develop this message of the availability of the kingdom of God. Now, think about it. Luke tells us that among the crowds are people who have been touched by this divine realm. And Jesus would be able to point out people who had been touched. He could say, see how blessed they are because the kingdom or divine life has touched them. And we have to keep all of this in mind because it's when we remove all of this that I think we struggle with the Beatitudes and trying to make sense of them. We 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 try to figure out ways to to prove that these are blessed conditions, right? So so these are conditions we need to attain to then, right? We 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 approach this trying to fill our desires to find something good, something God desires or requires of us, that, that when we fulfill them, somehow we are blessed. Like we by and large, we we have come up with with something that ultimately amounts to some state of mind or attitude that qualifies us for citizenship in the kingdom but uh, let's let's think about it when when Jesus preached concerning the kingdom the first thing stated was repent which is look change the way you're thinking like think about your thinking and the question is why well for the kingdom of heaven is here, In other words, Jesus is giving an invitation to change the approach to life now that divine life is available. And part of that change was realizing that blessedness was not to be seen as a reward for religious accomplishments, but the results of one's eyes being opened to a new reality. So Jesus is not congratulating people because of their spiritual or moral achievements with these statements. Instead, these statements are... Underscoring a reality, and it was a reality that people were experiencing, and one he could point to and say, See, here is someone who is supremely blessed, fortunate, well-off, someone who has been touched by the realm of God and has experienced true joy see Jesus is speaking about something that has the capacity to place within us joy, well-being, a joy and well-being that is not simply based on attainment but on having eyes opened. and this message of joy is central to what Jesus was doing. Like that's why John 15:11 records Jesus saying, the things that I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be." Full and this concept definitely made an impact on the Apostle Paul. You can see it in Romans fourteen seventeen, where he says, "For the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit." And again in Galatians five twenty two, "But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, peace patience, etc." And again, we must remember, we must remember this when we read the following words. They must be read in light of the central message of Jesus and the availability of the kingdom because in these beatitudes we find who this kingdom is for like who can have this life and the answer the answer may not have been so clear to them like it's not as clear to us today. So Jesus clarifies it. And when he clarifies it, he doesn't give them a list of how-tos to blessedness. What Jesus says actually shows that the kingdom of God, the care and provisions of the divine realm, excludes no human condition. In other words, any person can experience it. Any person can have it, can live it. And so with that in mind, let's look at Matthew 5. In verse 3, where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor. This word means utter destitution. Okay? Blessed are the poor. The utter destitute. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen. Listen. We are talking about the spiritually bankrupt, deprived, and deficient. Those who lack piety, who are destitute of the wealth of learning and intellect and spiritual matters. What Jesus says is is that the spiritually impoverished, those with no spiritual qualifications, will be filled with joy. Why? When they realize the kingdom is being made available to them. And see, some of the apostles would have been among those spiritually impoverished, believe it or not. Like we are talking about those people whom no one would expect God to use or move through. I don't know how better to describe this band of people that Jesus has gathered around him. And again, don't look at this as something God supposedly requires or desires of us. Jesus did not say, blessed are the poor in spirit because they are poor in spirit. Jesus did not say being poor in spirit qualifies you for the kingdom. They are called blessed because in their spiritual in, in their spiritual condition which is deplorable God has moved upon and through them, and they realize it, and that says something. Think about it. Think about people in the crowd who thought God was out of reach for them, and yet they were touched and experienced by that divine acceptance. That realization would have made them experience a tremendous amount of joy because they would have been led to believe that this was not possible, that they would not been, have been accepted or worthy Of this. And then Jesus goes on. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Luke 6, 21 says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, who might be those who mourn and weep? Well, I would say it's those who are brokenhearted, right? Think about the Samaritan woman. I wonder how many times she mourned over husbands. I wonder if Matthew might might fall here as well. Like it seems obvious to me that he wanted out of his situation. Like he he was too eager to follow Jesus for me to think he did not regret or didn't want out of his situation. Like this, this this could also speak to those who who might have been rejected by their spouses or family or friends or others because of their diseases and the paralysis. Remember, if you were sick, a sickness, a disease uh, that was for a lot of people, it, they were led to believe that. This was a sign from God, a judgment from God that he's displeased with you. And so some of these had, these, these are some of those who had been touched by the kingdom, by Jesus. And as, as they come to realize the kingdom is for them, for them too, right? They are going to find comfort, right? And their tears were turned to laughter. Again, these would be people who would have been led to believe that this was not possible, that they, they were not worthy of this, right? And Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the meek here are, are the shy, the mild, the unassertive. Like we are talking about those who allow others to speak above them, people who typically don't assert themselves unless, unless they're driven into a corner maybe, right? These, these, are, these are not going to be people who are first in line to get what they believe is rightfully theirs. In fact, these are going to be people who might socially be pushed to the back of the line, if, if not kicked out entirely. I, I think this could be descriptive of various people in various situations. And to the and to the contrary of what society has told them, Jesus says the kingdom is here and it's yours, and you are your father's sons and daughters. And as his children, you're not going to want. You're going to have everything you need. Hence, inherit inherit the earth. Again, people who would have been led to believe otherwise. Uh, Jesus, again, Matthew 5, 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness, right, justice, think justice, for they shall be satisfied. Luke six twenty one says it this way, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And what's interesting about this is because uh, justice in the way it's used in Scripture is, is quite a bit different than the way that we typically see it today. In Scripture, justice oftentimes had to do with the needy and those who were destitute, those who were hungry, who, weren't, who were starving, those who weren't uh, getting their share. Uh, and there was plenty of things, there was plenty of resources available, but it had to do with those who were in power and control of those resources and not making sure that they took care of those who were without. And so I don't think that it is coincidence that Matthew 5 says it this way and Luke says it Luke 6 says what he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. I think there's a play on words here. Now, I think we're talking about those who have, say, a strong desire for things to be made right. And and I think this could be looked at from different perspectives. Uh, It could be those, maybe like Matthew, who have had to live with their own guilt from sin uh, because of what he has done to others, and he so desperately wants to be made pure. He wants out. And We know Zac- Zacchaeus, Luke 19, may have hungered for this. I mean, look at what he did when Jesus came to him and, and how Jesus responded. He, this just could have, have been those in the crowd who had been wronged, suffered injustice at the hands of Roman soldiers or the religious elite, and, and they desperately longed to see things made right. Right. Um, And what what I interpret Jesus saying here is that the kingdom of God, the influence of God, has a way of setting things right. And like, for instance, just a couple of different perspectives. If it has to do with our past, something we have done wrong, the guilt we are carrying, the fact that the kingdom is available to you implies that there is forgiveness. And when we come to see that, we are blessed. And if it has to do with some injustice we have suffered as we we grow in the kingdom under the influence of God— the more insignificant some of our grievances may at least seem or, or maybe through our growth in our relationship with God, we come to truly forgive. You know, Either way, in the end, the result is, is blessed. And I think there's multiple layers to this and lots of, a couple of different perspectives that uh, can be used uh, to see what's being said here. Um, but again, these are going to be people who are led to believe in their current condition this was not available. Again, moving moving on in Matthew five seven, Jesus says, "Blessed are the merciful, think compassionate here, for they shall receive mercy." Now, who might the merciful be? Well, we have a pretty good idea who they are. Not right though to those to whom Jesus said, "Go and learn what this means." I desire mercy, right, not sacrifice. Think about those in a, who live in a culture where strength is valued. It's it's survival of the fittest, and mercy is seen as a weakness. Those who have not been shown mercy yet they have not retaliated. Think about those who have not been treated as they have treated others. In other words, those who love and have not been loved. Those who are compassionate, but that compassion is never returned. Those who have tried to do the right thing, but it seems to turn on them every time. It you know kicks them in the face. See so in the kingdom, they find all the mercy. They are recipients of tender compassions from from the divine and others within the kingdom. And in the kingdom, they will feel at home. And so those who are within the crowd before Jesus who just feel beat up, regardless of how <laughs> regardless of what they do and how they respond, and they're trying to do the right thing, but it just never seems to work out for them. Now, if it doesn't seem to work out for you in this culture, it was a sign that God was not pleased with you, for you were not blessed. But Jesus turns that around on its head and says, no, indeed you are. Indeed you are blessed, for you will receive the mercy, the mercy that others would seem that you are not worthy of. In verse 8, blessed are the pure which is a word that primarily means clean, okay? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, the way I see this, you can't escape the reality of Jesus' day and the fact that religion had to do with ritual purity, being in a state of ceremonial cleanliness, you know, like offering the correct sacrifices in the correct way, through a correct priesthood, yada, yada, yada. Now, I don't want to say that it was all about externalism, but there does seem to be a clear disconnect between matters of the heart and external actions. and It's why Jesus spent time focused on this, and pure in heart seems to reflect some internal realities instead of just external. So, who might the pure in heart be? How about those scorned by religious elite for not being able to keep the traditions because of their sheer impossibility of the burden? but their desires and motives were pure it might be those that that others would look at and never think that there could be anything good in them like the good samaritan who loved his neighbor right those who even though they may not have appeared to hold to the externals internally they were people after god's own heart like david but how would they see god right it's like how, how would they how would they <laughs> let's think about it the ability to see carries with it the idea of an awareness and in this context, it seems like it has to do with an awareness that there is more than just the external, more than what you, just what you see. It's more than what you're just being told. It's an awareness of what God sees, an awareness of the heart. It's, it's what happens when we, we grow and mature in the kingdom under God's influence. This, this, is, the, this is the journey that the disciples themselves are on. It's, it's what people, people's eyes are being opened to when they see Jesus. Now, in fact, later Jesus is going to say, when you see me, you see the Father— and I think it, it involves having a more accurate view of the nature and character of God. And in this occasion, it seems to be those who the religious elite would have seen as been further from God. They are actually the ones who are closest to God. They, they have a, a more accurate view of things, even though externally it would seem like everything is just against them. And then Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And see, now I, I see that the way that I see this is like Jesus is walking through the crowd, and he's able to point to people, understanding their situations and their scenarios, and look, see how they have been touched by the kingdom. And then he's touching other people and, and, and giving people hope in these moments, saying, this is for you, this is for you, this is for you. So who are the peacemakers? Well, those who seek for reconciliation— even with those who hurt and hate them, bringing good to even those who are in the wrong. is typically how this is seen. Now, the zealots, among many others, would have seen this course as, I don't know, ridiculous and foolish, right? But think about this. And this is this is what I think is being pointed out here. Not everyone hated the Romans or the Samaritans, etc., right? Some wealthy Romans actually loved the Jews, contributed to building synagogues and were highly esteemed by some Jews. So... There were some who essentially did the best with what they had and in doing so were peacemakers right they did the best with what they had now why now why, why were they called sons of God uh, Luke 6:35 this is because they are like their father who is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked and again <laughs> those who seem to be more like God are those the religious elite would have never seen as Reflecting God. So blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, I used to explain this as simply being about those who simply stand for what is right, who might suffer everything from momentary harassment to, let's just say, having their lives completely ruined could be people who are not willing to take bribes, uh, lots of corruption, right, when it came to some synagogues, temples, priests, ruling class, et cetera. And to take a stand may mean you find yourself on the opposing side of those in power. And to take a stand may mean you are no longer welcome in the temple or the synagogue. However, you could say Jesus, Jesus says you are welcomed in the kingdom of God. And I still think that this can be a part of the narrative, but I think it's more helpful to talk about it in these terms, okay? See, I see this as Jesus saying, blessed are you if you are persecuted by those who deem themselves righteous and feel justified in their actions towards you because of righteousness sake or for righteousness sake. Yeah. Almost like a summary for lots of people who have been listening to Jesus, like those mistreated and looked down upon by the religious elite, those made to believe God was not pleased with them, and they would never be on the receiving end of God's blessing. In fact, they they might have been accused as being a part of the reason the Jews were still occupied by a foreign empire, the, the segment of society that was deemed as being at the root of the problem. And Jesus brings them hope. They were touched by the kingdom, and as such, realized that they were not without hope, that things were not necessarily the way they were led to believe them to be. And so Jesus then goes on to say, "'Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account.'" Luke 6.22 says it this way, "'Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil.'" on account of the Son of Man. Now, what this has led some people to do and throughout history is to go seeking out persecution, right? It's almost kind of like uh, desiring to be a martyr. And I think that, that's, that's a, that is a twisted way of looking at this, right? Now, let's think about it. All these people who are being told the kingdom is for you, like God is near you, See, God has touched this person, this person whom others would say God would never touch, that God was displeased with, who would have nothing to do that have nothing to do with God and the kingdom of God and what God is doing. God would never work through these people, never, never move through these people, never touch these people. No, no, no. The kingdom is for you. God is near you. All these people who experienced the power of the kingdom, again, these were people who would have been degraded and as such would have been viewed as being far away from God, not worthy of his blessing now they would begin to think differently about things, right? They would begin to see things differently. And this new reality was a result of their encounters with Jesus. And that would change things. That would change things for them. But yet, on the other side, the religious elite would do anything to discredit Jesus and those who made these claims. And so all of a sudden, all these people who were on the outside finally feel themselves like they are in the inside. But, but there's going to be some tension. There are going to be those who are going to fight against that. And Jesus, Jesus seems to take the time at this point. uh, I guess you could say it's like a warning. Um, But I think it's, it's a way of saying, listen, this doesn't change anything, right? This, this, this doesn't change anything. Rejoice and be glad, he says in verse 12 of Matthew 5. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I say, in other words, Jesus is saying, Listen, you're in good company. Those prophets who were persecuted by their contemporaries are now seen for who they were blessed, fortunate, abused by man, but used by God. Now, course, uh, like with each of these statements, there are a variety of layers and perspectives from which they can be approached and applied, and I'm not saying that this is the perfect approach either, um, but I think at the end of the day, the important thing to remember is that no matter who we apply these things to, uh, you know, how we want to interpret them, what Jesus is ultimately saying is that the kingdom is available to everyone. Don't miss that. The kingdom is available to everyone and he's pointing it out saying you see here's the proof i'm pointing to the reasons why i say that and the reasons why you can entrust yourself to that have faith in that you know that it's available to everyone especially to all those who are led to believe otherwise so there's there's no mandate in the beatitudes and and i think even from our modern day perspectives it's it's more about having our eyes open to the reality of the kingdom and its availability to everyone. And I think that is, that is what Jesus is presenting here. That is what it's, that's what he is presenting to all those around him. And I think that is the point of the Beatitudes. Yeah, no mandates, just aha moments.